pastor here in Ordain. So uh, it, it's been really interesting to reflect on that and consider that and to realize that uh, this week or today, it's about five years and like a week and some change before Jamie and I packed all of our stuff up in sunny California. Yes, it is sunny in February. So we're moving to Michigan um, and call Hillside Community Church uh, our church home and a home in a lot of other ways. So uh, thank you for these past five years. It's been a huge blessing to us, the way that God has grown and blessed us through you guys. Uh, it's too many ways to count. So it's always a pr privilege, a joy, and a blessing to be here. So uh, thank you for allowing us to continue to worship with you. Uh, some of you may not be familiar with me at all, and that's okay, especially if you're new. Um, but my hope is at least most of, if not all of the students, high school students, at the very least just recognize my face. I'll take that minimum. Um, that's because we do youth group here every Sunday. Uh, high school meets here every Sunday. Tonight we'll be meeting along with uh, middle school will be here as well. Um, and it's just been a really fun year for uh, me in particular because of the stuff that we've got to talk about as a youth group. Um, we have talked about things like social media and its effect on uh, our lives, our relationships. Uh, we've had some really difficult topics like uh, substance abuse, sex outside of marriage, and the type of media that we consume and how it affects our daily life. Um, one of, and tonight we're actually going to be talking about mental illness. And so it's, it, there have been some difficult conversations and hard ones to approach. Uh, a lot of sensitivity and <laughs> certainly kept me up at night sometimes, but it's been really good conversations and the result of them have been really fruitful in developing uh, and growing our community. My favorite series that we've done this year, though, was called Know Your Why. And it was a series that we started with. Um, and really what it was was us examining and, and talking about the origins or fundamentals of what it is that Christians believe. Essentially what we asked was, hey, why, why do you believe this? Or if you do believe this, why do you do it? And without giving you the whole series, I'll give you the spark notes. My favorite talk was our first one, which was why even be a Christian? Okay? Why in today's world in any context, really, would you choose to claim the name of Jesus Christ? Um, why, of any other identity marker, would you say, Jesus is the one that I want to align myself with? Um, and, and we had a lot of different uh, discussions. Like we, we threw a whiteboard up there. We got some answers. Uh, some right, some maybe that culture has taught us, not so much the Bible. Um, but it was good conversation. And I think how we ended that talk was we said, you know, why be a Christian? It's because of Jesus Christ. Um, it seems like the, the simple answer, but sometimes Jesus is the right answer, <laughs> even when you're, you're an adult. So it, it, Jesus Christ. And it's because we believe that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Especially in today's, there's so many institutions, people, things that want to offer us relief from the broken world that we live in. I think we, we could all agree that we live in a broken, sinful world. And there's, there's people, there's, there's institutions, there's, there's all these things that try and say, I will fix it. And you need to put your hope in me and your trust in me because if you just hitch yourself to our wagon, we're going to make this thing better. And what we, as Christians, I think what we need to say is, no, Jesus is the only one who can do that. We live in a broken world and the only person who can fix it is Jesus. The only person who can restore things that have been broken is Jesus Christ and no one else. And as a result... We want to give our life to Jesus and give everything that we have to him and follow him because we ultimately believe that he is going to be the one that restores everything. Which is a great thought, a great conclusion to come to, but I think a natural follow-up question that usually comes with that is, how do we do it? <laughs> how do we live our lives for Jesus? What does it mean to be described as someone who is in Christ? What do people who are in Christ do different? 
how do they act? What is different between someone who is in Christ and isn't? I think that this term, in Christ, sometimes it's a term that we can say, but maybe not 100% of the time are fully aware of what we're saying when we say it. Um, so this morning, what I want us to do is consider this question. To you, what does it mean to be in Christ? If you define yourself as someone who is in Christ, what does that look like? What are the practical implications? How does it make your life different? How is someone who is in Christ different from someone who is not in Christ? Okay, I want us to think about that question. I want that to be our focus this morning. But before we do that, I want to share a story. Uh, this summer, myself, Katie Spikeman, does worship up here. She also is one of our high school leaders. And about 11 students went, not about 11, 11 students, went to Patterson, New Jersey. Um, and we did a mission trip. And what we did is we partnered with a couple of churches, and we did a lot of cleanup, and we did a lot of restoration work. Uh, we painted the insides and outsides of houses that operated as ministry centers for people in need in the community. Uh, we renovated basement entries. We worked in food pantries. We uh, painted lines in parking lots from you know, years of, of paint and decay. We, uh, we sang and danced with small children all night for their VBS. It was a truly fun experience. The last day we came uh, across our hardest project of the week. We had to paint um, the majority of a three-story parsonage along with a few other tasks. I mean, these students went straight from 8 beyond 5 p.m., then went to VBS, but worked straight through with one lunch break. And I mean, there was nothing that could have stopped these kids from getting the stuff that we needed to get done. We painted walls, we painted whole rooms, we painted hallways, we painted handrails, we painted stairs, and you might not think it's a good idea, but we also painted some of the floor. Um, and we painted everything. Uh, we removed unwanted furniture, we replaced certain things, we patched holes in walls. I mean, we did a lot. Uh, if you had came into this house the first day, and then seen parts of the house on the last day, you would have honestly believed that it might have been a different house in some areas. It was, it was, it was truly special. Um, it was without a doubt the most proud I've ever been of a, a group of students for the, the, the simple reason that we were exhausted, we were dirty, we were stinky. Um, all of us were annoyed with each other in some way, shape, or form, <laughs> as it happens throughout a whole week. Um, and we just wanted to go home. And the last day was our hardest work day, I and mean, these kids busted their tails to make sure that they could bless this church. I'll never forget, though, one, day, one part of this day, about three-quarters of the way through, we've got some students on ladders, uh, you know, painting, uh, edging in. We've got other kids taking, I couldn't even tell you what the material was, but it was something that didn't look very clean or unsanitary under 30 years of carpet. Um, I mean, it was, it was an absolute mess, but we were still going. We were working hard, and then one student asks, did we get a before picture? I was, uh-oh, looked at Katie. Katie looked at me. No, we didn't. And a collective groan swept across the room. Oh, you're kidding me. Didn't matter that we had been working like crazy that whole day. Didn't matter what happened. All of us were genuinely bummed out that we had no evidence of the transformation that took place in that house that day. And I think... The reason that is, I think what this story goes to show is that in our hearts, we're drawn to, we're captivated by restoration, we're captivated by renewal. There's this indescribable feeling of joy and fulfillment that we experience when we see or, or participate 
in rest restoration or renewal. And I think we see this even in our culture with the popularity of certain shows like Stream Home Makeover or whatever show is on HGTV. It's the exact same show for 30 minutes or an hour. No difference in plot. You just take a different couple and a different house or a different family, and we'll watch. A, we can sometimes even repeat what they're going to say before they're going to say it. It's that predictable. But we'll watch the whole thing so we can see that last five to ten minutes where they reveal and we see the before and after and go, whoa, that's cool. We see the family's reaction. We see how lives are changed. We'll watch the whole thing just for that moment. It's special to us. And I think maybe the reason that we're drawn to that, our heart is pulled towards it, is because there's something inside of us, maybe daily, but very often that wants restoration or renewal of our own. Uh, we know deep down that we can be better. We can do better. We can always be doing more. I think I'll speak for myself, but maybe you'll relate. I know that almost every day I think to myself, gosh, I'm not being the person that God has created me to be. And I wish I could be. I want to be better. I want to be that, that after picture that someone goes, whoa, okay, that's, that's really cool from where they've come. We all want to experience restoration and renewal in our own lives. And with that backdrop, I want to return to the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? Okay? Because I think at the core, what I want us to consider, what I want you to consider, is what type of restoration or renewal am I seeking in my life today? Because I think when we ask this question, at the core of what it means to be in Christ is to experience restoration or renewal. To be renewed, to be something entirely new. I think the Apostle Paul agrees, uh, as he says, not agrees, I took it from him, not from me. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it's our text this morning. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if, any, if you are in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So we see that part of being in Christ, what, what that means, Paul gives us the answer. It means that the old has gone and the new is here. This is, those, those lines, that phrase, that is the autobiography essentially to every single Christian's, that's the, first, the opening lines to every single uh, Christian's autobiography. The old is gone, the new is here. So as we consider this, what restoration or renewal you might be seeking as we try to answer the question what does it mean to be in christ and as paul kind of gives us this answer it means that there's some sort of restoration or renewal or new creation there's three questions i think that we need to ask first what is the old that needs to be gone okay what is the new that has to come and then probably more importantly how does this process happen so first what is the old that needs to be gone I think that we could say that all that is wrong in this world, or maybe just all that's wrong in ourselves, that's what we want to rid ourselves of. That's the old that needs to be gone. However, was there an old that Paul had particularly was thinking of? When he was writing his letter to the Corinthians, did he have an old in mind that he really wanted to hone in on? Uh, so let's, let, let's, let's look at that. Let's try to understand what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. So the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church, they had a complicated relationship, okay? Paul was obviously an authoritative figure, but 1 Corinthians, if you could sum it up in one phrase, it's seriously, guys. <laughs> He's writing to the 1 Corinthians and saying, you guys have all these, this drama, all these divisions, all these controversies, and Paul wants to address them. And all of their divisions, their controversies, uh, really could be summed up that they were selfish and they wanted to be winners. They wanted to, they, they wanted to be served, not seek to serve, and they wanted everyone else to look at them and go, now those, those guys are winners. 
right? They were thinking of themselves primarily and not other people. And we see it hashed out in different practical matters. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, oh, that's whatever, spoiler alert. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we see the church is having potlucks, right? And Paul is basically recognizing, okay, in your potlucks, the rich people are coming early. They're eating all the good food and drinking all the good wine. And so when you got the, the, the less rich people who are coming in, who've been working all day and who are actually hungry, they're coming and there's no food, there's no wine for them to drink. And this division would occur. Uh, when he talked about spiritual gifts in, Second, in 1 Corinthians 12, um, Paul, everyone wants to be able to speak and interpret tongues. Everyone wants to be the healer. Nobody wants to be the one who's hospitable. No one wants to be, you know, the encourager. No one wants to be the silent prayer warrior. These are not the type of things that we want to be great. We want to be flashy. Uh, they also wanted pastors and leaders that they could show off to people and go, look at the winners that we have leading us. And they wanted their leaders to make them feel like winners. But here was the problem. Paul was not going to cater to those desires. Paul was not interested in making them feel like winners. He did not want to sit around and always tell them, you're great, you're successful, you're this, you're that. Those people are not you. On top of all that, Paul himself didn't necessarily look like a winner. Paul was pretty unimpressive in, in person. All right? uh, he wrote half the Old Testament or New Testament, but he, uh, he was homeless often because he was going around and doing stuff for the gospel. He, was, he did a lot of manual labor with his hands, right? He made tents. Um, he suffered a whole heck of a lot. Uh, from church history, find out that he didn't, wasn't the greatest thing to look at. <laughs> Um, so Paul certainly did not fit the expectations or standards that the Corinthians viewed as a Christian leader. And in stark contrast, in the Corinthian church, there was a group that fit their standards, and Paul calls them super apostles. They looked good, they spoke well, uh, they, fit every, they, they fit the bill everywhere, right? They made them feel good, they, they affirmed their lifestyle, they affirmed the things that they shouldn't be affirming. They didn't preach the gospel, but that didn't matter to the Corinthian people because they were getting what they wanted, and they were finally getting the leaders that they had hoped for. So clearly they're enamored with the externals, status, worldly success. That's what they viewed as uh, what was true Christian leadership and authority. Um, that was what mattered to them. They, they, they desired flash over substance. And as I think about this, um, I'm reminded of a time a couple years ago when my wife and I first went to Niagara Falls. Now, don't get me wrong, Niagara Falls, that's the substance, right? Like, that's, in my life, probably one of the very few times that I've legitimately been speechless when I saw the falls. But if you know me, uh, I'm a very, very impatient person, um, and my wife can certainly confirm that for you. Um, but I'm the type of person that when I see a world wonder, right, I do this. Wow. That is cool. Yeah, seriously, get, get a video of this. We're going to need to show your parents. This is awesome. Okay, what's next? Uh, I mean, it, it's not enough that I'm looking at one of the greatest things that I've ever seen in my life. I need to go on to the next thing. Okay, what are we doing? What are we doing? We can't just stand here all day looking at waterfall. And my wife, I'm sure, drives her insane as it should, but sometimes she obliges this impatience. And this was one of those situations where she did. So we were at, we were at Niagara, we're at the falls, and it's nighttime. And so we went to a place called Clifton Hill. And man, if you've never been, this is, the, this is the tourist central of the falls. It's just a little bit away from the falls. This place had everything. You got the neon lights. You've got all the noises. You've got people winning games, kids winning prizes. There, I mean, the, the, you hear people karaoke. There's food everywhere. 
And my mind is just going, this is awesome, this is awesome, this is awesome. They've got this huge Ferris wheel. There are dinosaurs and a volcano and a putt-putt golf course. There's laser tag. I mean, this is where we need to be spending our time. Jamie, we've got to come back here tomorrow. I'm dead, I'm dead serious. We're looking at all this stuff, and I'm like, just look at all this. This is so cool. This is so awesome. My wife, being the saint that she is, um, let me go back there the next day. Um, but it was a totally different experience. Um, you see, uh, there was natural light instead of neon light. And turns out it wasn't impressive as I thought it was. And when you, when you go through it without the neon lights and all the flash, you see it's essentially just store after store doing the same thing, selling you a product or of some sort that's not very high in quality, but it's very expensive. And you realize, or we realized, I won't throw my wife in there, I realized Clifton Hill was not as cool as I thought it was. In fact, what made Clifton Hill cool was its neon flash. And the flash of Clifton Hill, I think, is a great example of what the Corinthians were after, what they cared about. It was flash, not substance. The more flash that they had, they they, uh, that was equivalent to God's blessing in their life. Uh, if you were like Paul, unimpressive and suffering, it meant that you were cursed by God. Now, before we just discount the Corinthians and say, well, that's ridiculous, I want us to consider how similar are we to the Corinthians sometimes. Um, speak for myself, I grieve how similar sometimes I am to the Corinthians, that when I come into church, um, this might be laughable to some of you, but you, you look at two different types of people and you, you sum up people almost by the clothes that they wear, right? If they're wearing a suit and tie or if they're really put together, um, they're probably better than the person that's wearing shorts and flip-flops. That one hits a little bit home for me. But we still do that, right? We, are, we, we look at people and go, okay, successful, not successful. Uh, got it together, not got it together. Um, I grieve how similar I am specifically to the Corinthians that when I exit off of a, a highway and I, I see a, a homeless person with a sign, immediately, without even thinking, my first thought is, well, I'm better than that person. Um, I've made better life choices. Um, I, I'm, just, I'm just, my quality of life is better. I'm just better. But then also the conversation that I tend to have in my head is if I just look forward and choose not to acknowledge this person's existence, perhaps they will not ask me for help. Um, I grieve how similar we are to the Corinthians sometimes in that, not all the time, but this does happen. There's a legitimate tension that is born, a legitimate tension that appears when a family who sends their kids to Christian school finds out that a dear friend decided to send their kids to public school. And there can sometimes be a legitimate tension that is born there. Um, and it's unfortunate. Vice versa, too. I, I, I grieve how similar I am to the Corinthians in that you guys pay me to see the potential and the potential impact that students can have on the world and our church specifically, but the church as a whole. But sometimes I doubt that contribution. I doubt that ability simply because of their age. They're 14. They can't drive. What are they going to do? <laughs> I mean, I have those, those moments. More often than not, if I'm honest with myself, I tend to think about myself before others. I'm also drawn to flash. And I think the Apostle Paul noticed this attitude in the Corinthians, and God sees it in our hearts today, and what we need to hear Paul and God say is, no, if you are in Christ, that is not who you are, and that is not what's important. That is the old way of seeing things, and seeing the world. See, Jesus has come. He's changed everything. 
the scandal of the crucifixion, the foolishness of the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection, that has essentially turned the entire world's value system upside down. We no longer live in a world where the one is one, where we live in a world where first is last and last is first. Jesus, and here's the irony, you know, for people that desire flash, um, Jesus died in the most shameful, cursed ways possible. The least flashy in terms of what we view as leaders. He died a criminal's death, the worst possible death, and ironically that has become our only hope, is a death that was completely shameful in every way, shape, and form in their culture. Our hope is in Jesus, not the old thing, which is people, status, or flesh. In Christ and because of Christ, we don't have to be worried about ourselves first. We're not supposed to focus on externals, and we have the ability to not be slaves to appearances. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, that way of viewing the world, the old way is gone, and a new is available. So then we have to ask the question, what, what is that new that has come? We could say that the new, in, its, in all actuality, is just the older old, right? It's a recreation going back to the garden, basically acting as if sin never happened. Um, but Paul doesn't necessarily give us a working definition of what the new is. He just says the new is here, right? But if we look back at a couple of verses before, specifically verses 14 through 16, we get this idea that what Paul believes the new is can be summed up in these two things. It's a life that seeks to love others, and it's a life that learns to view everyone through the lens of Jesus. Right? When we ask the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? I think that verses 14 through 16 really help us come up with a substantive, substantive answer. And if we need a bone to chew on, if you've been following our series for the past couple of weeks, um, if not, you can come talk to me or Pastor Daniel or Ron will gladly explain what I mean here. But if you need a bone to chew on for the next couple of days, to chew on with others, to, uh, a couple of verses to really think about, pray about, consider how it affects your life, and study I think we'll, we'll find it starting here in uh, verses 14 through 15. But I want us to consider this when we ask the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And then he continues, and he says, So from now on, we regard no one, from a worldly point of view. Though we, were once though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So Paul is describing what this new life is. Okay, we, want, we need to chew on what Paul is talking about here. He's saying the first characteristic that defines the new is it's a, it's a life driven by love for others. Paul is saying that one of, if not the primary reasons that Jesus died for us on the cross is so that we would see past ourselves and look towards others first and God. Right? Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are now called to be servants above all else. Servants of God. Servants of one another. And, and then he moves on in verse 16 and he says, another thing that the new life is defined by is viewing others through the lens of Jesus Christ. Paul uses the backdrop of what he knows the Corinthians is in, thinks is important. Status, all those things that the world um, desires. And, and then he tells us this. He says, I reject that view. You do not look at people through a worldly lens. One where things like status, wealth, ethnicity, gender, health, all those things define a person. He once viewed the world like that. In fact, he even viewed Jesus like that. Um, in Paul, in his old way of thinking, he used to view Christ through, the, through his lens, one where his tradition and his religious zeal actually made him believe that Jesus was a false messiah, a false savior, a false hope. 
But Christ appears to him and changes his whole way of thinking, his whole way of relating to the world, where he once viewed people according to the standards of the world. Again, health, wealth, status, ethnicity, gender, all those types of things. Because of Jesus, he now views people only in their relationship to Jesus Christ. It's as if Paul would say, I don't care if they are Jew, Gentile, black, white, orange, purple, doesn't matter to me. I don't care if they're rich. I don't care if they're poor. I don't care if they're middle class. I don't care if they've got a great home over their heads, no home over their heads. I don't care if they send their kids to public school, Christian school, charter school, homeschool or no school. I don't care if it's a man, woman, slave, or free. Here's what I want to know. Are they in Christ? Are you in Christ or are you not? Have their sins been washed away by Jesus' death and resurrection? And are they living their life as if they know this and are obedient to its implications? I don't care about anything else. Don't care how great you think you are, how great you want to be. Are you in Christ? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? And this is exactly how Paul wants us to behave and act. The old is gone. We don't live for ourselves, and we don't view people in worldly terms. The new is here. We live for God, we serve others, and we only view people in their relationship to Jesus Christ. When we ask the question, what does it mean to be in Christ, and I'm bummed because I left them on my counter this morning. I wanted to put on a pair of sunglasses. What what does it mean to be in Christ? It means that we put on a pair of sunglasses that allows us to see the entire world through the tint of Jesus. Our relationships, our career, every single encounter that we have the first thing that we consider is Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. I think that's what Paul's saying is don't look at anything through a worldly lens. It's Jesus. How how does this relate to Jesus? Now, that's great, but our last question is how does that happen? (laughs) how, How does the old go away? How does the new come? How does Christ bring about the restoration that we need? Because it has to be Christ can't be us. Uh, It's very difficult for us to put on those pair of glasses and look at the world through the lens of Jesus. Christ is the one who needs to do it. So how does the old go away? How does the new come? How do we become in Christ? See, if we think about a home renovation, I've been told, certainly not experienced, you need a lot of specific tools for very specific purposes. Um, And it's not an easy process, right? I mean, there's a lot, it requires a lot of tools and a lot of resources. But when we talk about God and how he restores, he needs one tool, one instrument for us to be in Christ, and that is Jesus himself. Is Jesus Christ working in the power of the Holy Spirit? Through faith in and obedience to Christ, the Holy Spirit does a work in our heart where we become restored, transformed, and rebranded. And perhaps a a good way for us to understand this fuller is to maybe think about the idea of adoption. Hey, um, I don't know uh, how many of you know this, but I was actually born Eric Layton Long. Um, I didn't meet my biological father until I was 19 years old. Um, And at three years old, the man who I would call my father um, ended up adopting me. Um, And like in marriage, the adoption changed my name. It changed the core of my identity as a three-year-old, whatever identity was there. Um, And I became Eric Eugene O'Connell. I didn't know my real dad. Um, And I didn't have a dad in the picture, and I didn't know the benefits that came with having a father. But with my dad, when my dad adopted me, I began to experience whether or not I could tell them to you well or not. I began to share in all the benefits that came with being branded an O'Connell. I gained aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, people who would love and care for me and provide for some of my needs. I finally learned and felt 
what the touch of, a, the love of, the care of a father felt like. Um, something I was completely foreign to at the time. With my adoption came this new reality and a new, new future. Eric Leighton Long, thing of the past. And Eric Eugene O'Connell, who I permanently became. Um, and just like my dad adopted me, you know, I experienced some benefits, my name changed and all this stuff, and I got to experience this stuff. But that's what happens when Christ adopts us, only it brings about a much cooler effect, brings about our, our, our entire restoration and renewal as a creature in Christ. And I think this is a good picture of what, tr how that transformation process happens. When the old goes away and the new comes, we have to recognize that it's because of Jesus. Jesus is the focus, not us. It's Jesus' work. Yes, we might be a new creation. We might have changed. Our old might be gone and the new might be here. But it is because of the work of Jesus only. Think about that in adoption. When I was three years old, I could no way, shape, or form tell my father, you need to adopt me and I will be an O'Connell. It took my father saying, I want him. I'm going to claim him and brand him as one of my own and I will be his father. It took my father's work, not mine. And similarly, we are offered the opportunity to be in Christ because of Jesus' work on the cross to take away our sins, because of Jesus' death and resurrection and victory over the power of sin and death, because of Jesus' ascension into glory and authority. That's how we are offered the opportunity to be in Christ, not by any of our work. It is because of Jesus revealing himself today. This is why it's important that we read our Bible. This is important. That's why we pray. That's how God is showing us this is how that process happens. It, it, it's, it's all on account of Jesus and his pursuit of us and revelation to us that we can be made new and we can be in Christ. It's because of Jesus. And as we close, I want you to notice something really important, though. Paul says that anyone who is in Christ, is a new creation, not will become a new creation. It's a present reality. It's not a step-by-step -step rewards process, but you'll finally get it. If you are in Christ, the old has gone, the new is currently here. But here's the thing. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, does it? <laughs> um, the truth of the matter is that when we walk out these doors, sooner than later, some of us sooner probably than we're comfortable admitting, we will start looking at the world through a worldly lens. And we will start seeking to be served before we serve others. Just because we are in Christ does not magically make us incapable of being selfish and being broken and being sinful. The reality is that we're still broken, we're still sinful, and it'll be that way this side of heaven. Yet at the same time, we ought to recognize that in our brokenness, Jesus gives us the strength and the ability to love others as we ought, as he has called us to right now. That's the beauty of being in Christ, is that humble love and service is not something that comes naturally to us. It's something that is very difficult for us to do naturally. We need to be in Christ so we can learn from his helping. And here's the thing, we, we don't do this well. We don't look at the world through the lens of Christ naturally. But praise be to God that when we call on Jesus for that strength and for that ability, he is faithful to provide that for us. That is why it's so important to actually be in Christ, to have faith in and be obedient to him. This is one of those things that in the Christian life where it's currently happening, but the fulfilled and complete version of it will, will come one day when Jesus comes. We are a new creation today if we are in Christ, yes, but there will come a day where sin and death is no longer a part of the equation, and we will fully, perfectly be in Christ exactly how he called us to, and we pray for and we hope for that day every single day.
Are you in Christ? What does it mean for you to be in Christ? And are you in Christ? Have you given your life over to, to our resurrected Lord and Savior in obedience? Have you experienced the benefits that come with being in Christ? If so, are you showing evidence that the old has gone? Are you able to look at the people on your left and your right, front, back, whatever direction, the people in your life, and not see them as the world sees them? Has the work of Jesus on the cross compelled you to regard others as more important as you, just as the Apostle Paul did, just as Jesus did? In your life, are you able, even just for a moment, to be able to put those glasses on that has the tint of Jesus as you look at the world? It's hard to take off the old self. The old self is comfortable. It's what we know. It's what our culture and pretty much everything else in this world embraces us to, or breeds us to, to embrace and to love. To embrace and own the new creation is a difficult journey. In fact, it's one that requires us to die to ourselves daily. To be in Christ is to say less of me, more of Jesus. It's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. But when we learn to truly let the old pass away and the new reality or the new creation to truly define us by the power and grace of Jesus Christ is where we find life and it's where we find purpose. And the good news for us this morning is that in Christ, we are not stuck in our old ways. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. What does it mean for you to be in Christ? I would suggest and I would hope that for you what that means is being able to see the world through the lens of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. It's a difficult thing to do. It doesn't come natural. It's going to be a marathon, not a sprint. It will be a daily process, a daily journey. It won't just be this eureka moment. It is difficult. But man, when we are able to actually do that, to see through the lens of Christ, the world changes. More importantly, we change. And it brings such great glory to God. Let's pray. God, we ask for nothing other than for your strength and your, your power to us to be able to view the world through your lens, through, through, through your death, through your resurrection, and through your power. On our own, God, we are, we're going to mess things up, and we're going to continue uh, the brokenness. But God, we ask for your strength, for your power, and for your lens so that we might be able to be your hands and feet to the people that we come across so that all people might one day say, I want to be in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, we're going to end our time with Steve leading us in the doxology. Sing together, praise and glory. Praise and glory to the Father. Praise and glory to the Son. Praise and glory to the Spirit. Ever three and ever one. Sing that again, praise and glory. Sing praise and glory to the Father. Praise and glory to the Son. Praise and glory to the Spirit, ever three and ever one. And as you go from this place, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face to you and give you peace. Claim the name of Christ. Go in peace as a new creation. Amen.